On behalf of our center and our partners, the World Economic Forum and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to our audience here in New York, as well as our larger virtual audience participating online today. The Event 201 scenario is fictional. Today's scenario is going to simulate meetings of a multi-stakeholder group called the Pandemic Emergency Board. We're at the start of what's looking like it will be a severe pandemic. And there are problems emerging that can only be solved by global business and governments working together. There has been uh, some conspiracy theories that are around about uh, the potential that pharmaceutical companies or the UN have released this for their own benefit. And maybe this is a time for us to showcase some cases where we are able to, to bring forward some bad actors and leave it before the courts to decide whether they have actually spread some fake news. A new coronavirus. Infected people got a respiratory illness with symptoms ranging from mild flu-like signs to severe pneumonia. In related news, a significant demand for personal protective equipment like N95 masks and gloves are on the rise. Patients are overwhelming healthcare facilities. People are avoiding public spaces out of fear of infection and in compliance with public health recommendations. Our U.S. affiliate has just released polling results on public expectations for a vaccine, and 65% of those polled are eager to take the vaccine, even if it's experimental. I'm not optimistic about having the vaccine in time to be relevant during this pandemic. With enough money and political will, anything is possible. Penalties have been put in place for spreading harmful falsehoods, including arrests. If the solution means controlling and reducing access to information, I think it's the right choice. What exactly are the risks and benefits of staying home from work? Absolutely, we need to save lives, but we literally cannot afford a heavy-handed response that suffocates our economy. The world saw large-scale protests and in some places riots. This led to violent crackdowns in some countries and even martial law. The public lost trust in their respective administration. Economists say the economic turmoil caused by such a pandemic will last for years. The societal impacts the loss of faith in government, the distrust of news, and the breakdown of social cohesion could last even longer. We have to ask, did this need to be so bad? On May 4th, 2020, as part of a documentary series called Plandemic, I released an interview featuring science whistleblower, Dr. Judy Mikovits. The interview received fierce backlash for spreading what the media declared dangerous conspiracy theories. As a father and a veteran media producer, there is no way that I would release harmful information into the world during a moment as vulnerable as now. I had known Dr. Judy for two years before filming her interview. I read her book, then thoroughly researched and vetted her story. After interviewing her legal team, former colleagues, and people who have known her for decades, one thing I can say without question is, Judy Michaelvitz is one of the most honest, caring, and courageous women I've ever known. Why then would the most powerful forces of big tech, politics, media, and medicine go to such extreme measures to silence her voice all over the world? And why did all of the debunkers invest so much ink and airtime defaming Dr. Judy's character while avoiding very real revelations pertaining to patents, conflicts of interest, and the deadly corruption pervading our global health organizations. To get to the bottom of these questions, as well as many others, I've spent the last several weeks interviewing scholars from all over the world, 
among them top doctors, distinguished scientists, and Nobel laureates. I also sat down with Dr. Judy for a follow-up interview and to give her the opportunity to respond to critics. You can see that full interview on the Plandemic website. While you're there, make sure to dive down the rabbit hole where you'll find additional videos, documents, and scientific studies that support the claims and perspectives put forth in the Plandemic series. Here are a few highlights from my follow-up interview with Dr. Judy. What do you have to say to the people who have tried to minimize your involvement with HIV by stating that you were at the bottom of the totem pole, 13th author of a 13-member group of scientists? <laughs> well, the 13th author is the senior author, so that means they're the most important author. Why did you agree to retract your own XMRV paper? The paper was actually force retracted. I was actually being held in jail. You told me that you had financial offers to remain silent. If you simply say you made a mistake and promise never to say another word, you can keep everything. You'll get all of your grants. You'll get everything back, millions of dollars. You'll get publication and funding. My lawyer said, that's the best offer you're going to get. I said, you don't understand me. I don't need an offer. I've already lost everything. If I thought even one child or one grandma was injured or killed because I didn't do something, that would have ended my life as I know it. There was no money you could ever pay me to get me to cover this up. I will never stop telling the truth. I'm the developer of linguistic genomics, which was the first platform on which you could determine the intent of communication rather than the literal artifact of communication. But we've also used that technology for a number of other applications in defense and intelligence and finance. And most notably, in the early 2000s, my company was responsible for bringing down what was at the time one of the largest tax frauds in US history. We maintained a series of inquiries into every individual, every organization, and every company that is involved in anything that either blurs the line of biological and chemical weapons or crosses that line in any of 168 countries. In 1999, there were a million patents digitized by IBM. And those million patents were the first time human innovation had been put into an electronic digital searchable format. We took that information and we did a very simple exercise using our linguistic genomics technology. I made the horrific assessment that approximately one third of all patents filed in the United States were functional forgeries, meaning that while they had linguistic variations, they actually covered the same subject matter. In 1999, patents on coronavirus started showing up. And thus began the rabbit trail. March 2003, panic grips Hong Kong as a deadly new virus sweeps through the city. In 2003, the Center for Disease Control saw the possibility of a gold strike. And that was the coronavirus outbreak that happened in Asia. They saw that a virus they knew could be easily manipulated was something that was very valuable. And in 2003, they sought to patent it. And they made sure that they controlled the proprietary rights to the disease, to the virus, 
and to its detection and all of the measurement of it. We know that Anthony Fauci, that Ralph Barrick, that the Center for Disease Control and the laundry list of people who wanted to take credit for inventing coronavirus were at the hub of this story. From 2003 to 2018, they controlled 100% of the cash flow that built the empire around the industrial complex of coronavirus. The World Health Organization has officially named the, the new novel coronavirus, coronavirus the sweeping coronavirus the country global coronavirus The coronavirus outbreak. The World Health Organization has declared an international public health pandemic. emergency. While we know that the coronavirus manipulation started with Dr. Ralph Barrick in 1999. The major characteristics of SARS, MERS, and SARS coronavirus too, it's a good way for you Ralph Barrick is the researcher at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who's famous for his chimeric coronavirus research. In 2002, there was a recognition that the coronavirus was seen as an exploitable mechanism for both good and ill. On April the 25th, 2003, the U.S. Center for Disease Control filed a patent on the coronavirus transmitted to humans. Under 35 U.S. Code Section 101, nature is prohibited from being patented. Either SARS coronavirus was manufactured, therefore making a patent on it legal, or it was natural, therefore making a patent on it illegal. If it was manufactured, it was a violation of biological and chemical weapons, treaties and laws. If it was natural, filing a patent on it was illegal. In either outcome, both are illegal. In the spring of 2007, the CDC filed a petition with the Patent Office to keep their application confidential and private. They actually filed patents on not only the virus, but they also filed patents on its detection and a kit to measure it. Because of that CDC patent, they had the ability to control who was authorized and who was not authorized to make independent inquiries into coronavirus. You cannot look at the virus, you cannot measure it, you cannot develop a test kit for it. And by ultimately receiving the patents that constrained anyone from using it, they had the means, they had the motive, and most of all, they had the monetary gain from turning coronavirus from a pathogen to profit. Developing and owning a coronavirus vaccine has become a biotech arms race with political overtones. This vaccine gold rush is starting to bother me. Gold rush? Hmm, let's keep that in mind. And so somewhere between 2012 and 2013, something happened. The federal funding for research that was feeding into places like Harvard, Emory, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, that funding suddenly became impaired by something that happened at the NIH, where the NIH got this little tiny moment of clarity and said, I think something we're doing is wrong. And in 2013, the NIH said, gain-of-function research on coronavirus should be suspended. The National Institutes of Health had a moral and social and potentially legal reason to object to research. 
But the letters that were sent to the researchers essentially said, you are receiving notice that we're telling you to stop. And now on the bottom of the page, we're gonna clarify what stop means. Keep going. But when the heat gets hot in 2014 and 15, what do you do? You offshore the research. You fund the Wuhan Institute of Virology to do the stuff that sounds like it's getting a little edgy with respect to its morality and legality. But do you do it straightway? No. You run the money through a series of cover organizations to make it look like you're funding a U.S. operation, which then subcontracts with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The U.S. could say, China did it. China could say, the U.S. did it. And the cool thing is, both of them are almost telling the truth. Where did the coronavirus come from? There is a new investigation into its origins. U.S. intelligence officials tell NBC News that they are examining whether the virus accidentally came from a Chinese lab. Chinese officials pushing back against that claim on Thursday, tweeting that it might be the U.S. Army who brought the epidemic to Wuhan. I was the first person in the world to look at an epidemic and study its characteristics and prove that it was due to biological warfare and was not a natural occurrence. So I published that 28 years ago. Early in this pandemic, I did not think the coronavirus was a natural occurrence from bats. I feel quite convinced that this was a laboratory designed organism. There have been hundreds and hundreds of leaks from high containment laboratories that do research on pathogenic coronaviruses and other potentially lethal organisms. I was particularly interested in a paper that came out in Nature Medicine by five scientists claiming that it was definitely a natural occurrence rather than a lab construct. But the arguments they used did not hold water. They didn't really make a lot of scientific sense. And yet all kinds of very important people started parroting what this paper said. And so that, of course, got me scratching my head saying, why are these people risking their reputation when it's obviously illogical, you know, doesn't hold water? Somebody must have made them publish this and Somebody must have told these other people that they have to say it's, it's a great piece of science. You were quoted as saying it was a meticulous job done professionally. It could be done by some, somebody very expert in molecular biology, I think. Et c'est pas naturel, c'est ce que vous voulez dire Non, ce n'est pas naturel, c'était un travail de professionnel, un travail de, de biologiste moléculaire. C'est un travail très minutieux. On peut dire d'horloger, on peut dire dans au quel niveau but, des séquences. Mais dans quel Alors, but la, la, Dans quel but, ça, ça n'est pas, pas clair. Moi, je l'expose, je, si vous voulez. Mon, mon travail, c'est d'exposer les faits, c'est tout. See, the problem with all of this is the evidence is right in front of our face. And when confronted with evidence, we are told fact-checkers are somehow transcendent. The pace of our modern world makes it nearly impossible for working people to research the events and policies that shape their lives. When seeking answers to life's most pressing questions, where do we go first? Google. Enter the subject, hit go, and there it is. Only what they want us to see. In today's culture of copy and paste journalism, it's common for hundreds of unrelated outlets to feature the exact same report. 
This is not the result of laziness. This is by design. When we see identical headlines across seemingly unrelated platforms, the logical mind concludes, well then, it must be true. The illusion that numerous news sources have arrived at the same conclusion gives us confidence to share the chosen narrative. And just like that, we become the unwitting pushers of propaganda. Search engines are the holy grail for those seeking to control the narrative. Google is already more powerful in terms of its control over people's lives than almost every government on the planet. As the most influential search engine in the world, through its ubiquitous reach, Google has more power to influence U.S. elections than any foreign nation. You testified before this committee. You said in subsequent elections, Google and Facebook and Twitter and big text manipulation could manipulate as many as 15 million votes in a subsequent election? And the methods that they're using are invisible. They're subliminal. They're more powerful than most any effects I've ever seen in the behavioral sciences, and I've been in the behavioral sciences for almost 40 years. The blacklists is something that Google said didn't exist, and they testified that under oath. And nothing but the truth will help you guys. I do. Now, me as an engineer, I just did a search on Google's internal search engine, and guess what I found? It had blacklisted search terms like cancer cures. Why is Google deciding what people can and cannot search for? What was once an efficient tool for navigating the world of information is now a network for global surveillance, data collection, and social engineering. Now let's take a look at a few of the most commonly used fact checkers, beginning with Snopes. The husband and wife duo of David and Barbara Mickelson founded Snopes.com in 1995. They had no journalism background or training whatsoever. They built their fact-checking empire by using Google as their primary verifying source. The Mickelsons divorced in 2015. Barbara sued David for embezzling money that he allegedly spent on prostitutes, as well as a lavish honeymoon with his new wife, who worked as an escort in Las Vegas before joining the Snopes cast of characters. In 2017, David Mickelson's new business partners filed a lawsuit accusing Mickelson of multiple counts of fraud and embezzlement. Snopes proclaims to be the internet's go-to source for discerning what is true and what is total nonsense. Yet one glance at their history of fact-free checking tells another story. When Dr. Mikovits claimed she was arrested without a warrant and jailed without a charge, Snopes rated her statement false. Had they bothered to explore the arrest documents, they would have seen that indeed there was neither a warrant nor signatures to officiate a charge, a fact that I confirmed with members of Dr. Mikovits' legal team. Was there a search warrant? No. And was she ever charged? No. Never charged with a crime. 100% correct. Judy has never been charged with any crime. Facebook's fact-checking arm, PolitiFact, is owned by the Pointer Institute, which has received substantial funding from big pharma allies such as Google and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Like Snopes, PolitiFact has a history of misleading the public. In late January of 2019, PolitiFact, Snopes, and FactCheck.org raced to squash the notion that coronavirus and its treatments were patented. They reviewed only three of the 4,452 publicly available patents 
which unmistakably show that SARS coronavirus detection and treatment have been widely patented by both the public and private sectors. Facebook's founder pledged to the WHO, saying they would remove false claims and block exploitative ads. They're working with the World Health Organization and with the NHS, so they have a hotline, if you like, from those official sources. Wikipedia is the go-to destination for introductions to people, places, and things. Even the all-knowing Amazon Alexa calls on this digital encyclopedia. Alexa, who is Dr. Judy Mikovits? According to Wikipedia, Judy Ann Mikovits is a former American research scientist who is known for her discredited medical claims. She has been described as an anti-vaccination activist and a promoter of conspiracy theories, and has been accused of scientific misconduct. Wikipedia is supported by the Wikimedia Foundation, a nonprofit parent organization with a long history of politically tied funders. Many named, many anonymous. What exactly does a Wikipedia donor receive in exchange for their generosity? What began as an unbiased, open-source platform is now weaponized to undermine the work and reputation of anyone deemed a threat to its stakeholders. And once they smear you, they lock you out from making corrections to your own bio. In summary, most independent fact-checkers are neither independent nor factual. Simply put, they are political spin machines. And so what they have done is they've decided that there's an approved narrative. If it is in line with the CDC's public pronouncements, and if it's in line with the World Health Organization public pronouncements, it is presumed to be correct. I don't have to remind many Americans that the Center for Disease Control was the one that said you should use DDT in your homes. Used right, it is absolutely harmless to humans and animals. Remember the name, DDT. A scientific panel today reported that pesticides may indeed represent a grave threat to mankind. Remember the swine flu scare of 1976? That was the year the U.S. government told us all that swine flu could turn out to be a killer, and Washington decided that every man, woman, and child in the nation should get a shot to prevent a nationwide outbreak, a pandemic. Well, 46 million of us obediently took the shot. Did anyone ever come to you and say... There's the possibility of neurological damage if you get into a mass immunization program. No. No one ever did? No. I can't believe that they would say that they did not know that there were neurological illnesses associated with influenza vaccination. That simply is not true. We did know that. Uh, and he's lying. I guess you would have to um, make that assumption. Then why does this report from your own agency list neurological complications as a possibility. You didn't feel it was necessary to tell the American people that information. Dr. Sensor's CDC also helped create the advertising to get the public to take the shot. The vaccines are safe, so roll up your sleeve. And now Americans are claiming damages from Uncle Sam amounting to three and a half billion dollars. By far the greatest number of the claims, two-thirds of them, are for neurological damage or even death. There are serious concerns tonight about how well the CDC controls dangerous germs at its own labs after yet another safety lapse. For the third time in a month, the CDC acknowledged deadly pathogens were handled incorrectly in government labs. That CDC is the CDC that allegedly is looking out for your public health. When we start with the assumption that the official dogma 
has to be the objective standard, then what fact checkers look for is a piece of published media that confirms the statement made by that particular organization. And then debunkers and conspiracy theorists, blower-uppers come in and say, ah, we're going to make this thing clearly the scam that it is. Every media outlet that is in the public media right now has planted evidence and they have re-ranked pages. So if you look today at face mask wearing, and if you look today at social distancing studies, you will see the studies that used to be number one, number two, number three on the pages of PageRank search don't exist anymore. And what is there are studies that wind up having headlines that support the common narrative. You're going to be hearing more about advanced guidelines. Because if you can keep people from assembling, guess what they're not talking about? They're not talking about the issues of the campaign. If you can keep people in their homes, the only source of information that you can have is what you curate for them. Now I know how to target my electorate. They're in the only place I allow them to be, being fed the only message I'm allowing them to hear through a media that I control. Since the invention of the printing press, there's been a battle to control disseminated information. In the early 1900s, oil tycoon John D. Rockefeller took control of every newspaper and news editor of his era. He became America's first billionaire, paving the way for the power-hungry ever since. Thus began the gold rush for the modern world's most precious resource, the narrative. Do you have any people being paid by the CIA who are contributing to a major circulation American journal. During a Senate committee investigation, it was revealed that the CIA had been conducting a covert operation to infiltrate and control U.S. media. They called it Operation Mockingbird. We do have people who submit pieces to American journals. Do you have any people paid by the CIA who are working for television networks. This, I think, gets into the kind of details, Mr. Chairman, that I'd like to get into in executive session. Over 3,000 CIA contracted and trained operatives are placed in key positions within top media outlets. Posing as editors and journalists, these well-paid actors never dared to question the effect of their lies on the world beyond their cozy studio. How often does the CIA manipulate the media in this way? It goes beyond your wildest imagination. Setting up student organizations so they could draw radical students in. 5,000 university professors co-opted to help the CIA manipulate people's minds. Journalists in the U.S., including big-name journalists, co-opted to function routinely to help the CIA put out stories and biases to the world. As this 1952 CIA memo says, the aim is controlling an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will. It's a great brainwashing process to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interest of defending themselves, their families, their community and their country. 
Would you say that continues today? Well, I, yeah, I would think probably for a reporter it would continue today, but because of all of the revelations, I think you've got to be much more careful about it. So how do we know that Operation Mockingbird still isn't in effect? Well, we don't. It was the Telecommunications Act of 1996 that opened the door for predatory corporations to monopolize the industries of print and broadcast. This bill protects consumers against monopolies. It guarantees the diversity of voices. Today, a handful of corporate empires own and control the vast majority of everything you read, hear, and watch. From the biggest movie studios, television and radio networks, newspapers and magazines, to the vast universe of internet news and entertainment sites. Amazon has transformed its operations in response to COVID-19 to protect employees and keep packages flowing. The company is and keeping keep its employees safe and healthy while still delivering those packages to the doorstep. The company is keeping its employees safe and healthy. The company is keeping its employees safe Millions of Americans staying at home are relying on Amazon. And that is how it works. It's like a house of mirrors where you're seeing the same thing over and over and over again, except it's distorted. There's an industry that is paid to go after and target journalists, whistleblowers, and inundate our consciousness and the images we see to try to ruin, destroy, or smear the idea that they don't like or the person who's delivering it. You smear somebody with falsehoods and all the rest, and then you merchandise it. And then you write it, and they'll say, see, it's reported in the press. So they have that validation that the press reported the smear. And then it's called the wrap-up smear. Now I'm going to merchandise the press's report on the smear that we made. And it's, it's a tactic. Welcome back, everybody. News personalities are not the only high-paid actors to serve the propaganda machine. Most late-night talk shows are owned by the same corporate overlords and thus follow the same script only laced with a laugh. Our main story tonight concerns conspiracy theories. Last Week Tonight with John Oliver featured a skit entitled Coronavirus Conspiracy Theories. It's like the claim that the moon landing was faked. First thing to note here is that Mr. Oliver opens with commentary about conspiracy theories that are completely unrelated to coronavirus. This is a standard tactic used by propagandists to set a tone so that anything that follows will be seen through the lens of absurdity. Plandemic, a pseudo-documentary filled with a hodgepodge of conspiracy theories. Mr. Oliver then does his best to debunk Dr. Judy's claim that she was arrested but never charged with a crime. She was absolutely criminally charged. This was not an oversight, but a blatant lie. Prior to the taping of this episode, Mr. Oliver had the official arrest documents that clearly proved that Dr. Judy was never charged with a crime. Mr. Oliver then attempts to debunk the idea that a beach, AKA nature, holds any value in boosting our body's natural immune system. Instead of challenging the point with science, he kills it with a smear. Everything that you just said is insane. Television is not the truth. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. 
Don't turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. In 1979, the world decided that we needed the Bayh-Dole Act because we needed to reform our patent system. And one of the modifications was we allowed recipients of federal funding to patent and retain economic interest in the research that the public paid for. You get a $5 million grant from the taxpayer, and then you get to charge the taxpayer a premium for the technology they paid to develop. Pfizer is going to get nearly $2 billion. Moderna receiving $438 million in taxpayer money. And yet both companies have said they will not sell the vaccine at cost. They're going to make a profit on it. Should pharmaceutical companies profit off this vaccine research that taxpayers have helped fund? And the Bayh-Dole Act failed the American people because rather than standing on the shoulders of giants, we now kneel at the feet of greed. My systems flagged anomalies when I started seeing nonprofits and corporates and cover financing for coronavirus programs in the late summer and fall of 2019. Our first red flag came out when we read the world at risk scenario. Now there is an organization called the Global Monitoring Preparedness Board. This organization is a part of the World Health Organization and this board includes Dr. Elias from the Gates Foundation and Anthony Fauci from NIAID. These two individuals plus the director of the Center for Disease Control in China come out with a recommendation that says that by September 2020, two global pandemic preparedness exercises have to be completed. And one of them has to be done on the release of a respiratory pathogen that then gave rise to an October event, Event 201. On behalf of our partners in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Event 201 took place five months before COVID-19 was declared a pandemic. The participants of the event are some of the same people that are now deeply involved in the real pandemic and profiting from it as well. Event 201 was a scripted, multi-camera, live event that was broadcast globally via the internet. An event of this complexity and magnitude would take months to write, prep, and produce, placing the conception date at least one year prior to the actual pandemic. There is no question that there will be a surprise outbreak. Anthony Fauci knew as early as January of 2017 that we would see an outbreak before the end of 2020. Even Bill Gates, a man with no medical training, knew it was coming. If we start now, we can be ready for the next epidemic. Every single thing that you have seen play out in front of your eyes, all of them laid out in their tabletop exercise, which by the way, fact checkers have said, has nothing to do with the coronavirus outbreak. Just happenstance. This is that wonderful universe of improbabilities where events just co-emerge and then nature conveniently backs itself into our architecture. That's, that's the scenario we're supposed to accept. Brilliant. Some countries have banned travel from the worst affected areas. The president has made a decision to suspend all travel 
to the United Kingdom and Ireland. Dis and misinformation circulating over the internet. Across the world, misinformation about the virus is being shared online. A significant demand for N95 masks and gloves are on the rise. The demand for N95 masks to prevent the deadly airborne virus has surged. We could eventually have 52 million treatment courses per year but it will take many months to get there. We're still many months out from having something that we can really deploy to the public. And 65% of those polled are eager to take the vaccine, even if it's experimental. The new poll finds that 49% of Americans say they would get a COVID-19 vaccine should an effective one be discovered. I'm curious, who wrote the Event 201 script? If the visionaries of the event knew at least one year in advance what was needed, why didn't they take care of those things? Considering that Bill Gates has donated half of his fortune to make the world safer, why didn't he help to better prepare our hospitals and frontline workers? Why didn't any of the event's wealthy sponsors do something? Now here we are. You know, we, we didn't simulate this, we didn't practice. On behalf of our partners in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So both the health policies and economic policies we find ourselves in unchartered territory. Event 201 was not the first scripted exercise to prophesize the future with astonishing accuracy. Leaders of global health and business have been seeding reality with fictional scenarios for several decades. The scenario obviously is fictional. One year prior to Event 201, many of the same sponsors, hosts, and actors came together to produce a tabletop pandemic simulation for a fictional virus they branded Clade X. One year to produce a vaccine for this is too long. Uh, we should have stockpiled, we didn't, but we're gonna have to look at that vaccine question to see if we can speed up the delivery. And if we do not have the public with us, we're in big trouble. In 2010, the Rockefeller Foundation released a 54-page document called Scenarios for the Future of Technology and International Development. Page 18 features the pandemic scenario, Lockstep, a world of tighter top-down government control and authoritarian leadership with limited innovation and growing citizen pushback. China's government was not the only one that took extreme measures to protect its citizens from risk and exposure. During the pandemic, national leaders around the world flexed their authority and imposed airtight rules and restrictions from the mandatory wearing of face masks to body temperature checks at the entries to communal spaces like train stations and supermarkets. Even after the pandemic faded, this more authoritarian control and oversight of citizens and their activities stuck and even intensified. We are living in a time where leadership unfortunately is compromised. And by that I mean, that individuals are placed in power for their ability to be influenced, not their merits of leadership. Nothing could be clearer than the leadership of the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization is the institution granted exclusive power to guide and protect the health and wellness of humanity. The WHO is sustained by private donations, the bulk of which are made by pharmaceutical and biotech corporations who have a vested financial interest in the organization's support. In 2017, the Associated Press reported that the WHO routinely spends about 200 million a year on travel expenses, more than what it spends to fight some of the biggest problems in public health, including AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria combined. 
The WHO's repeated issuing of inaccurate and bad advice is not merely the result of incompetence, but rather the direct result of the Communist Party of China deliberately buying out WHO's leadership. On the nomination of the executive board appoints Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus as Director General of the World Health Organization. Tedros Ghebreyesus is the World Health Organization's first Director General that isn't a medical doctor. The appointment to the organization's highest position was controversial, given that in his previous role as Ethiopian's health minister, Tedros was accused of covering up three major health epidemics. Tedros is no stranger to controversy. As a former minister of health in Ethiopia, he has been accused of an alleged cover-up of three possible cholera epidemics. Prior to his appointment, Tedros was a high-ranking member of the Tigray People's Liberation Front a brutal and corrupt political group responsible for crimes against humanity, including bombings, kidnappings, tortures, and killings. How does a man with such a controversial past score the top position at the world's most influential health organization? I have known Bill and Melinda for, for many, many years now. While serving as Ethiopia's health minister, Tedros became intimately intertwined with both the Gates Foundation and the Clinton Foundation. The health minister of Ethiopia, one of the ablest public servants I ever worked with. With the backing of the two most powerful foundations on earth and the full support of the Communist Party of China, Tedros was a shoo-in. We will have many body bags in front of us if we don't behave. You cannot find a person promoting this scenario that's not part of the interlocking directorates of the World Health Organization, the CDC, the NIAID, or the organizations that are the philanthropic cover organizations that fund them. We now know that there are over 1,300 patents currently issued and held by organizations that are multiply recipients of funding through the Gates Foundation, through EcoHealth Alliance, through the Sherlock Biosciences connection back into open philanthropy. And all of them also have links directly to NIAID Anthony Fauci's funding sources. If you have conflicts of interest in the funding and in the decision-making and in the inside knowledge that you have between competing or competitor organizations, that is a violation of the antitrust laws of the United States. These are federal crimes. If you have the power to immediately fix whatever's wrong with our current medical system, where would you start? Conflicts of interest. About 40 or 50 years ago, pharmaceutical CEOs actually went to jail if they knowingly sold a bad product and concealed information about the problems with that product. Since then, all they have done is paid fines. And so selling a product and concealing information about it is okay because paying the fine is considered the cost of doing business. How did the pharmaceutical industry come to capture the rest of the medical industry? And it's because they had so much money to bribe the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, the professional associations, you know, the journals, 
the medical schools and everyone else. Around the same time that John D. Rockefeller seized U.S. media, he also hijacked U.S. medicine. When it was discovered that drugs could be produced from petroleum, America's top oil mogul ordered his army of propagandists to invert reality accordingly. Medicines used for thousands of years were suddenly classified as alternative, while the new, petroleum-based, highly addictive, and patentable drugs were declared the gold standard. After buying the German pharmaceutical company that manufactured chemicals of war for Adolf Hitler, Rockefeller leveraged his political influence by pressing Congress to declare natural healing modalities unscientific quackery. Rockefeller then took control of the American Medical Association and began offering massive grants to top medical schools under the mandate that only his approved curriculum be taught. Any mention of the healing powers of herbs, plants, and diet was erased from most medical textbooks. Doctors and professors who objected to Rockefeller's plan were crucified by the media, removed from the AMA, and stripped of their license to teach and practice medicine. Those who dared to speak out were arrested and jailed. When evidence began to emerge that petroleum-based medicines were causing cancer, Mr. Rockefeller founded the American Cancer Society through which he suppressed that information. John D. Rockefeller is duly credited as the founder of the pharmaceutical industry and the reason that medical error is currently the third leading cause of death in America. This is not an indictment against doctors. More than anyone, they are under the stranglehold of the single largest lobbying power in Washington. Every year, the pharmaceutical industry spends at least twice the amount as big oil to influence laws, policies, and public perception. Thanks to Mr. Rockefeller, the architect of American monopolies, no industry has more power over our lives than Big Pharma. Part of the problem, and this, by the way, goes back to the 1980s with Microsoft, is Bill Gates found out that it was very difficult to manufacture a way to navigate through the patent universe, saying that it's Microsoft holding the patents. And he became the architect of a very cunning program of putting patents in holding companies that didn't have anything to do with the name of the organization. According to legend, young Bill Gates built his computer empire out of his garage. Reality tells another story, that Bill Gates was born into wealth and privilege. Both his grandfather and great-grandfather were banking moguls. His father, William Gates Sr., was a prominent Seattle-based lawyer and political lobbyist. Through his father, Bill Gates learned the ins and outs of law and politics and how to manipulate those governing forces. I'm Bill Gates, chairman of Microsoft. Bill Gates dropped out of college to start Microsoft. He is credited with inventing the operating system that became Windows. However, he played no part in the invention of Windows. The fact is, he bought an existing operating system from Seattle Computer Products, had it modified, then licensed it to IBM. That didn't stop him from taking all the credit. I don't see Bill Gates as this great creative person. I see him as an opportunist. While Microsoft's co-founder Paul Allen was struggling with cancer, Bill Gates seized the opportunity by attempting to cheat him out of his share of the company's fortune. They were basically talking about how they were planning to dilute my share down to almost nothing. And it was uh, you know, really a shocking and disheartening moment for me. And you were sick? Well, I think I was still probably in the middle of radiation therapy. Gates' business strategies came under fire in 1998 
when the United States Department of Justice sued Microsoft for antitrust violations. This is take three of the videotape deposition of Bill Gates. During the 18-month trial, Gates gave hours of videotape testimony. What were the non-Microsoft browsers that you were concerned about in January of 1996? That month. Yes, sir. And what about it? What non-Microsoft browsers were you concerned about in January of 1996? I don't know what you mean, concerned. Um, what is it about the word concerned that you don't understand? I'm not sure what you mean by it. The Justice Department has charged Microsoft with engaging in anti-competitive and exclusionary practices designed to maintain its monopoly in personal computer operating systems. In a move to overshadow the negative press, Gates invested $100 million to set up the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Overnight, Bill Gates transformed his public image from ruthless tech monopolizer to the world's most generous philanthropist. I'm pleased to announce that we're pledging an additional billion dollars uh, to We had the chance to witness Bill Gates 2.0, the man you don't know. The rebranding campaign paid off. His net worth swiftly doubled, earning Bill Gates the title of richest man in the world. You've invested $10 billion in vaccinations over the last two decades, and you figured out the return on investment for that, and it kind of stunned me. Can you walk us through the math? In a Wall Street essay, Bill Gates declared vaccines the best investment I've ever made. There's been over a 20 to 1 return. So if you just look at the economic benefits, uh, that's a pretty strong number compared to anything else. The Gates Foundation expanded rapidly into a massive, vertically integrated, multinational corporation controlling every step in a supply chain that reaches from its Seattle-based boardrooms to the villages of Africa and Asia. Is the world's largest private philanthropy causing harm? The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has made millions of dollars each year from companies blamed for many of the same social and health problems the foundation seeks to address. The Gates Foundation has investments in 69 of the worst polluting companies in the U.S. and Canada. Other companies in the foundation's portfolio have been accused of transgressions, including forcing thousands of people to lose their homes, supporting child labor, defrauding and neglecting patients in need of medical care. The Gates Foundation has not provided details. William H. Gates III and Melinda French Gates. As a top donor to both the WHO and the CDC, no one man has more power than Bill Gates to influence and control the health and medical freedom of all people. Normalcy only returns when we've largely vaccinated the entire global population. This will be the new normal until a vaccine is developed. Until we find a vaccine, going back to normal means putting lives at risk. We need to produce it and to deploy it in every single corner of the world. Full vaccination of our children and pregnant women. Development of new vaccines, therapeutics and diagnostics. And for effective vaccines and therapeutics are developed. We've already bought the syringes. We already know where it's going to happen. We're thinking about what that's going to be. It's all part of this plan.
our military is now being mobilized. So at the end of the year, we're going to be able to give it to a lot of people very, very rapidly. In 1986, President Ronald Reagan signed the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, granting total immunity to vaccine manufacturers. After a decade of lawsuits related to vaccine injuries and deaths, vaccine makers were going bankrupt. In a move to coerce policymakers, vaccine companies threatened to stop making vaccines until they could be legally shielded from liability. To this day, when someone is injured or killed as the result of an adverse reaction, it is the U.S. taxpayers that pay for the damages. Welcome back. Were several Indian tribal girls used as guinea pigs? The report alleges that two American pharma giants, untested vaccine was administered to thousands of tribal girls without proper study and paperwork. India was among the hardest hit after Bollywood celebrities were incentivized by the Gates Foundation to urge the public to submit to mass vaccinations. In 2009, tribal children were administered the HPV vaccine. Over 24,000 girls were told they were being given wellness shots, in many cases without the informed consent of a parent or a guardian. The people that were administering these vaccines lied to the guardians of these girls and told the girls, oh, this is going to cure cancer. You're never going to have cancer. And these girls became severely injured. Some of them developed seizures. Some of them developed cancer. And seven girls died. And there was no insurance. There was no assistance for them. And the Gates Foundation denied that it had been clinical trials. And it was so bad that the parliament in India created a task force, they studied it, and they kicked out the Gates Foundation. But India is a barbaric country. Things happen here in a very barbaric way. But I was surprised to find an American organization operating in broad daylight, doing things in a very, very, let's say, Indian fashion. And so the route I took was that I want the whole procedure to be investigated. The Indian Parliament formed a committee and it was to me a rather surprising move because you generally don't often have such a high level inquiry into matters affecting poor people. And that was such an extraordinary report. I don't think Indian Parliament has ever come out with such a scathing report. And the government officials came up and said, we shouldn't have authorized this. We're sorry. We're not going to allow them again. And now they're back doing their same old tricks again. The good news is that human clinical trials can start as early as July 2020 for India's first COVID-19 indigenous vaccine that's been developed by Bharat Biotech. So you can imagine how the manipulation of the media by the media the manipulation of public opinion by leaders from all political parties unanimously saying, we want a vaccine. And the worst thing is they are taken as philanthropists. Whereas what this actually is, is the acquisition of political and financial power. And I think the second most populous country with 1.3 billion people is going to be a good base for pharmaceutical companies to make a killing and also kill a lot of people in the process. 
Yes, I just find it a pity that we haven't been able to get any benefit for the girls who suffered, you know. It's so terrifying as to what they're actually doing with the world. We're taking things that are, you know, genetically modified organisms and we're injecting them in little kids' arms. We just shoot them right into the vein. A 2018 scientific study released in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health concluded that over 490,000 children in India developed paralysis as a result of the gate-supported oral polio vaccine that was administered between the years of 2000 and 2017. Using all the usual sleight of hand, U.S.-based media and fact-checkers rushed to bury the story. But thanks to the meticulous work of a team of Indian researchers and doctors, the inconvenient truth lives on the NIH.gov website. It's my honor to introduce Bill and Melinda Gates. Without any medical training, Bill and Melinda Gates founded the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, through which they fulfill their agenda to vaccinate the world. The foundation has been sued by the governments of some of the poorest and most vulnerable nations for causing serious harm through experimental vaccine programs. If you just look at healthcare workers around the world, they deserve to get the vaccine first. You know, here in the United States, really it's going to be black people who really should get it first and many indigenous people. Vaccines were always taught to us that it was safe, it was, it was healthy, this is things that we had to do. But given the position that I am in now as a state legislator, and looking at these studies and reviewing a lot of these studies is very scary. And I want the African-American community to open up their eyes. Of all the places that Mr. Gates could have gone in the world, why did he settle on Africa? It's not because he cares about people that look like me. He cares about an agenda. African bodies have been used as lab rats for many years for Big Pharma. They are using us for trials, they are using us for testing, but as an African, I say no more. Africans, they're tired of becoming the guinea pigs of the world. Their antennas are raised and they are telling each other all over social media, they're on high alert right now. There is a policy of the American government it's called the Kissinger Report, which was produced in the mid-70s. And it explicitly states that uh, the purpose of the foreign policy in Africa was to uh, reduce the, the population because they have great mineral resources there. And the time Kissinger and those involved with the Carter administration wanted to shrink the population, make sure that the Africans do not develop and do not use the resources for themselves, because we in the States, we need them. There is a, a concerted effort of foreign powers to uh, control the population of Africa. Some children did survive the botched vaccinations last month and will recover, but 15, all under the age of five, died from fever, vomiting and diarrhea. Human errors contributed to the unfortunate deaths of the children. How can you believe Big Pharma, but not believe these parents when they tell you that their children have been injured by Big Pharma? I don't care how big this corporate machine looks. As a parent, I can tell you, these people will never stop fighting for their kids.
It would take hours to list all of the questionable initiatives that Bill Gates is involved in. Here's a few of the highlights. Gates is one of the key funders in the stratospheric-controlled perturbation experiment designed to block out the sun in an effort to control global warming by releasing massive amounts of calcium carbonate and other materials into the upper atmosphere. Critics, including environmental scientists, have called the project a global genocide experiment. Gates has invested over $1 billion in EarthNow's global surveillance project. The project will launch hundreds of satellites into space, which will allow for the 24-7 monitoring of all people everywhere. In partnership with MIT, Bill Gates has developed a new technology that allows vaccines to be injected under your skin, along with your medical records. The Quantum Dot Tattoo will implant an invisible certificate that can be scanned by authorities using a cell phone app and infrared light. Eventually, what we'll have to have is certificates of who's a recovered person, who's a vaccinated person. So eventually, there will be this digital immunity proof. The EPA recently approved an experimental use permit to Oxitec, a biotech company funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In an effort to fight malaria, Oxitec will soon release millions of genetically modified mosquitoes in various U.S. states. According to the NIH website, programs are being developed to allow human immunization via mosquito bite. It was Science Magazine that coined the phrase, flying syringes. A shocking new report from the New York Times sheds light on the connection between Microsoft founder Bill Gates and the late Jeffrey Epstein. You report these two men met at least six times. Well, I believe that there were more. This included visits to the mansion, seeing each other in Seattle, flying on Epstein's plane. When flight logs revealed that Gates had been a passenger on the Lolita Express, he claimed that he didn't know that the private jet belonged to Epstein. He also denied that he and Mr. Epstein were involved in any business deals. However, an expose by the New York Times revealed that not only did Bill Gates initiate a relationship with Jeffrey Epstein well after he was convicted of sex crimes, but the two were also involved in the process of co-founding a multi-billion dollar charitable fund. Why would they ever set up a charitable trust benefiting Jeffrey Epstein? That it was all about philanthropy, that Bill Gates just wanted to find new sources of money. Why would one of the richest men in the world choose to partner with the world's most notorious pedophile? A deeper dive into Epstein's world revealed that the two men had more in common than meets the eye. Like Gates, Epstein was a billionaire philanthropist with a passion for science, health, education, and children. The Jeffrey Epstein Foundation donated millions of dollars to top universities, science institutes, medical schools, early education programs, youth initiatives, and international peace accords. Bill Gates is either the most misunderstood man alive or one of the most convincing con men to ever live. Is he a benevolent hero or a malevolent opportunist? Bill Gates. Personally, I would love to believe that one of the richest men in the world is giving away his fortune for the betterment of humanity. I want to believe that endearing smile. I want to believe that his heart is as soft and warm as his sweaters. At the very least, I want to believe that he's unaware of the damage he's done.
to announce that we've discovered a vaccine. We no longer have to live in fear. Everyone can get back to their normal lives. It's the great hope galvanizing the world. A vaccine for COVID-19. But are we being sold a lie? After all, COVID-19 is the seventh coronavirus to strike mankind. And we've never found a vaccine for any of them. The shortest time anybody's ever found a vaccine against any disease that I'm familiar with is about seven years. The average time is 20. To be talking about a magic bullet coming in months, it borders on the absurd. People like myself and Tony Fauci are saying 18 months. A year to a year and a half. If everything went perfectly, we could do slightly better than that. But there will be a trade-off. We'll have less safety testing than we typically would have. And so governments will have to decide, you know, do they indemnify the companies and really say, let's, let's go out with this. Something that people should know about COVID-19 vaccines is they fall today under the PrEP Act, which came into being after 9-11 and after an anthrax scare. And this law gives virtually blanket liability protection. It's basically impossible to get any kind of compensation if you're injured. So people need to understand that if you take COVID-19 vaccines, you are absolutely on your own. If you're permanently injured, if you lose your job, if your healthcare expenses go through the roof, Tough luck. Volunteers all across the country began getting shots today as part of the final phase of testing for an experimental vaccine being developed by the NIH and the drug company Moderna. Um, the side effects for the Moderna vaccine sound concerning. We looked. After the second dose, at least 80% of participants experienced a systemic side effect. So. Are these vaccines safe? Well, the, uh, the FDA not being pressured will look hard at that. The FDA is the gold standard of regulators uh, and their current guidance on this, if they stick with that, is, is very, very appropriate. Uh, and, you know, the, it, the, 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 the side effects were not super severe. That is, it didn't cause permanent health problems for uh, the things there. They, you know, Moderna did have to go with a fairly high dose. And so, uh, you know, to get the antibodies. This isn't a vaccine story. This is a population management story. If your goal is to make this beautiful earth that we live on an exclusive playground for the entitled few, then populations that get in the way are a problem. And it is the empirical impulses of individuals who have decided that by outranking the rest of humanity, they can dictate upon humanity the conditions of their existence. Now we need to go and look in families to find those people who may be sick and remove them and isolate them. This bill enables the police to enter a home without a warrant. Madam Speaker, the police have never held that power. 
We will find out who lives in the house. And if it's someone that is refusing, we will definitely consult with our health officer to look into next steps. So the sheriff's department and the health department showed up at her door with orders for her and her husband to wear ankle monitors. The couple says they never denied self-quarantining. You will no longer be able to leave home. Only one person will be able to go shopping once per day. Recreational activity is now no longer allowed. You will be allowed to have one hour of exercise, no further than five kilometres from your home. Are you serious? Just for not having a mask. For no mask. Are you serious? We will shut you down. We will cite you. And if we need to, we will arrest you and we will take you to jail. You know the old expression about snitches? Well, in this case, snitches get rewards. Some people are ratting their neighbors out, calling the police, but others are turning to the internet where social distance shaming has gotten ugly. In a time of crisis, trying to force compliance upon a population by making neighbors and friends distrust one another is exactly the opposite tactic we actually need. When human societies lose their freedom, it's not usually because tyrants have taken it away. It's usually because people willingly surrender their freedom in return for protection against some external threat. That's what I fear we are seeing now. This is a cognitive dissonant moment, which is being imprinted in your brain, just like remember the Great Depression, remember 9-11. Weapons of mass destruction. We are being conditioned to have the excuse for unbelievable acts of tyranny, which will be justified by remember 2020. And your loved ones, those that die, those that are infected, they're being used as cannon fodder, which is the ultimate desecration of their honor and integrity. And this is also a test of humanity to see how much of our liberty we will let go before we finally draw the line under enough. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, stated, unless we put medical freedom into the Constitution, a time will come when medicine will organize into an undercover dictatorship to restrict the art of healing to one class of men and deny equal privileges to others. That time is now. Well, this won't be the last pandemic that we face. So we, you know, we'll have to prepare for the next one. That, you know, I'd say is, uh, will get attention this time. Mm -hmm. This is not a time for us to go in a mob frenzy, find the perpetrators and haul them into the town square and pillory them. This is a moment for us to recognize that every decision that is being made today by any of the conspiring parties made perfect sense in each increment when each one of those decisions was made. The sum of those incremental steps has led to devastation because they lost touch with their fellow humanity. But that's an invitation for each one of us to examine how we're living and how not a single decision we make, not one in any moment is without consequence. 
This is our moment to reclaim our humanity. Our lives are shaped and guided by stories. The stories we're told become the stories we tell. The more we hear them, the more we believe them. When used as a tool, they help us to better understand who we are, where we came from, and where we're going. When used as a weapon, they can be deadly. One of the most dangerous stories we've been told is the one that goes something like this. Humanity is a failed experiment. We are parasites, a cancer, a virus. Human beings are a disease. It is a myth that permeates our movies, our music, our media, and our minds. As they say, repeat a lie often enough it becomes truth. Perhaps that was the goal of the authors of that story. Um, we feel too afraid to have kids um, because we feel that we're heading towards civilization breakdown as a result of... Fear shuts down the part of our brain designed to solve problems. Without that ability, we look for others to guide and save us. In doing so, we lose touch with our most primal nature. We forget that we are an extension of the most brilliant and resilient ecosystem in the universe. We stop eating food grown from the earth and begin consuming products processed from machines. We trade medicines that heal for drugs that harm. We abandon love and liberty for debt and dependency. The good news is our story is not over. The climax has yet to come. That moment when the hero rises from defeat, summoning a force they forgot they had, a force within, a force of nature. Yeah!